Let's pray as we turn there this morning. Father, we do thank you that you have made us your precious children. That you sent your son that we might become sons and daughters of yours. We pray that even this morning as we look at these moments from the life of our Savior when he was but a child, that we would find that we are reveling in him more and more, that we are exalting you. Continue to conform us to his likeness, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Matthew chapter 2, starting in verse 13 and going through verse 23. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt. And remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. And though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. When we began the series uh, in the Gospel of Matthew, we mentioned the fact that Matthew goes out of his way to demonstrate to us as the reader that Jesus is that long-awaited-for King of Israel, that He is that Messiah that was prophesied about. And he is building upon that even in our text this morning as he is, he is providing three more prophecies from the Old Testament that Christ fulfills. In many ways, we could say that these opening sections of the entire gospel are centered upon these prophecies. That is that Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is this Messiah, that he was born with purpose. He was born for us. He came into this world for us. Our passage this morning involves three of these prophecies, and 
And Matthew will interpret the events in Jesus' life as a youth around these three prophecies. And we'll see in them that Jesus is first the suffering Savior who identifies with His people. Second, that Jesus is the true Israel of God who rightly represents His people. Third, Jesus is the deliverer who provides hope for His people. And finally, that Jesus is the humble Messiah who serves His people. So He is the suffering Savior who identifies with His people, the true Israel of God who rightly represents His people, the deliverer who provides hope for His people, and the humble Messiah who serves His people. You will remember from last week that Herod wanted to know the location of the birth of this this one that was descended from David, this one that was proclaimed king. And so he asked the Magi where this Jesus was born. He asked his different uh, religious leaders and counselors to inform him, not so that he could go worship Jesus, not so that he could offer him any kind of gifts, not so that he could give him any kind of adoration, but rather so that he might destroy him and kill him. And so in our passage, we now find that Joseph is warned in a dream by an angel. And the angel informs Joseph of Herod's intentions to kill his newborn son. And so the angel commands Joseph to take Mary and this baby Jesus and to flee down to Egypt and to remain there until a time that the angel tells them that it is safe to return. And so this little family of three, they are on the run. They're on their way to Egypt. Doesn't that strike you as a little odd? But here is the Son of God, born into this world, and He's immediately persecuted. Before Jesus could utter a word, before He could crawl, maybe even before He could hold up His head, He's persecuted. He was forced to become a a refugee and flee to a foreign land because there was a despot at home that was seeking to kill him. This is the Son of God. To remind ourselves of that when we read this passage. The Son of God, He's sovereign over all the world. Why was He afflicted and persecuted from His very birth? One would think the Savior of the world, the Son of God, would have been welcomed, that He would have arrived in peace and ease, but He wasn't. Why? Because that isn't the Savior the world needs. Jesus doesn't arrive in luxury. He doesn't enter the world with peace all around because that world needs no redemption. He comes into a fallen and suffering world in need of a Savior. And so immediately he's persecuted. He's Emmanuel, God with us. The suffering Savior we need, God with us. So as God with us, he experiences this fallen world in all its horror. All its suffering, all its pain, all of its injuries, all of its losses. 
worst it has to throw at man. In many ways, we could say that Matthew is focused upon this this very real idea in the last half of chapter 2 and even chapter 3 and on into chapter 4 that we have a suffering servant who identifies, a suffering Savior who identifies with His people. God with us. And that's the kind of Savior we need. A suffering Savior, one that we can cry out to, one that we can turn to, one that understands. And that's what we have in Christ. As the writer of Hebrews says, we have one that is able to sympathize with our weakness. He knows the pains of the world. They were his companions from his birth all the way into his death upon the cross. He knows our pain, and it's in a very real sense he is in it with us. He's with us. Two things happened to me simultaneously this week. I was studying the first part of this passage and thinking through this idea, and I decided to leave the church on my lunch break and go run an errand, and so I was driving down Grand River. And as I drive, I listen to books, audiobooks, and so I was listening to an audiobook, and I was driving down Grand River, and... I lifted my eyes up to see this billboard. And on the billboard, it said this. It said, we are in this together. And I thought, I wonder who I'm in this with and what is it that we're in together. And so I began searching around the billboard, and it was an advertisement for an insurance company. Now, I've had four claims in the past year. And I can confidently say I have never felt like we're in this together. Never. Uh, well, at the same moment, same moment, uh, I'm listening to this audiobook on tape, and it's a book about World War II, and it was at the point in the book where it was talking about Edward R. Murrow, who was the great radio voice of, uh, of American radio leading up to World War II and then during World War II. Uh, he stationed himself in London during the bombing of London when America was still out of the war and England was being bombed, the battle over Britain and those blitzes, those bombers going over London and wreaking devastation and havoc and incredible uh, injury and death. And Edward R. Murrow saw it as his job to try and convey a sense of the brutality and the anguish and the horrific nature of this war because he was trying to talk the American public into wanting to enter this war and save Britain from Germany. And he talks about how hard it is to convince an American public that is humming, its economy is humming because it's giving war supplies to England and selling these things, and yet it's not feeling any of the effects of war, just the positives. And after World War II, he said in, an, in a BBC interview, he said this, he said, it's difficult to explain the meaning of cold to people who are warm, the meaning of privation to people who have only wanted for luxuries, 
It's almost impossible to substitute intelligence for experience. We have a Savior who knows. Who knows the sufferings of this world. I dare even say, I know there is major suffering in this room. But he knows it even beyond anything that anyone in this room has experienced or ever will experience. He knows it. He knows the harshest persecutions. He knows the worst of the world's darknesses. He experienced them from his birth to his very death. And so we can pour out our hearts to him, the writer of Hebrews says. We can call out to him. He understands. Every trial, every burden, every sorrow, he understands. Jesus is the suffering Savior who identifies with his people. He's also the true Israel of God who rightly represents his people. In verse 15, we're told that Jesus remained in Egypt until Herod's death. Egypt, it doesn't exactly create warm, fuzzy feelings in a biblical reader's mind, in a Bible reader's mind. Uh, This is not the place that you think of running off to, but this wouldn't have been so odd at this time. The border to Israel was only 75 miles away, and it was frankly safer than Judea at this time. We know that at this time there was a population of about a million Jews that were residing in Egypt. And so it is off to Egypt that Joseph takes Mary and he takes Jesus and Matthew then gives what many find as an odd fulfillment of prophecy in verse 15 where he says, out of Egypt I called my son. And that's a quote from Hosea 11.1 if you were to look back at Hosea, it's clear in the context that Hosea is actually speaking of the nation of Israel, and the nation of Israel is often called the Son of God in the Old Testament, and the nation of Israel is coming out of Egypt, out of that bondage, out of that slavery, and and that's what Hosea is referring to. But Matthew says, Jesus went to Egypt, quote, to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. And so this has led some over the years to say, well, Matthew is not a very good exegete. He's ripping this out of context. He's doing violence to the Scriptures. But he isn't. As you and I, as we think about different prophecies and their fulfillment, uh, there are prophecies that are prophesied and there is a one-to-one correlation, a one-to-one fulfillment. So, for example, when Jesus says that He prophesies that he shall return upon the clouds with the angels and the archangels. That is going to be a one-to-one fulfillment. It's going to happen just like that, one time. But there are other prophecies that are uttered that occur or are fulfilled in different ways over the course of redemptive history. And the earlier occurrences are what we call types or figures or shadows of that which is to come. So a good example would be of something in the Old Testament, a type, a shadow, a figure that you readily recognize are all the sacrifices and all of the blood that is shed and and the Day of Atonement. You recognize that that is a true type. That's a true shadow of that which is to come. 
Jesus' death upon the cross. Or you think of the tabernacle or the temple as the meeting place between God and man. That's where God and man meet. And yet, as a Christian, you know. You, you know that's a type. That's a shadow of Christ to come, the meeting place of God and man. Now, in the same way here, Israel was called God's son throughout the Old Testament, but so was the son of David who was to come and to reign. For God had promised to David in that covenant that he signed with David in 2 Samuel 7 that he entered into. He said, quote, He, meaning his son, shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. This descendant from David that shall reign on the throne of Israel forever shall be my son, even as he is your son, David. A son. So this prophecy is is a part of the entire picture of this Messiah that was to come, the seed of the woman, this, this seed of Abraham, this son of David that would be the Messiah and the king that would reign over God's people forever. Jesus is the fulfillment of it. Matthew here and throughout his gospel is helping us to understand that You and I have to read the Old Testament as a whole. For it to rightly be understood, we have to read it as a whole. And as a whole, it points to Christ. He's the climax of redemptive history. He is that which everything is aimed at and moving towards. And Matthew makes it clear here. Jesus is the very Son of God, and as such, He is the true Israel of God. Israel in a person, if you will. He emerges out of Egypt, the very Son of God, just like ancient Israel that when it emerged out of Egypt was a true event, and yet it was a type and a shadow of the true Israel, Israel in a person, Christ Himself emerging out of Egypt. And pointing forward to that day. And whereas Israel failed as a nation, Israel in a person, Jesus will be faithful. And we'll clearly see that in chapter 4. That's what's happening in the temptations. But Israel was in seed, in seed form, and was in part, Jesus is in completion and in perfection. He is the faithful, the faithful filled, obedient Son of God, the true Israel of God, rightly representing the people of God. I want to be clear, I don't think that this means that God doesn't have any kind of future plans for ethnic Jews. I think that there will be, my personal opinion, I think there will be some mass coming to saving faith of Jews Near the end times, that's how I understand Romans 11. But I also want to be clear that it's not what many evangelicals believe and what they promote. It is not that there will be some kind of 
nation state that God takes care of. It's, it's not that there will be some reinstituted sacrifices in the temple and the land. It is not that there will be some kind of millennium, literal thousand years in the land where God is reigning over Israel. It is not that. Make no mistake, no one is saved by their ethnic makeup. Rather, what Matthew is alluding to here is that, as D.A. Carson said, Jesus himself is the locus of true Israel. That is, God's people are not determined by race, but they're determined by their reference to Jesus. Are they connected to Jesus? Are you in Jesus? Jesus is the true Israel of God who comes out of Egypt. He's the focal point of all redemptive history representing the very people of God. And either you belong to him. And so as he is a son, so you are a son, you are a daughter. Or you don't belong to him. And you are counted with Herod. It's one or the other. We would have redemption. It's in Him. As such, Jesus is also the deliverer who provides hope for His people. Matthew makes that clear in the next prophecy fulfilled. We're told in verse 16 and following that when Herod realizes that the Magi have pulled one over on him, and he's been tricked by them, he sends his soldiers off to Bethlehem responds in fury and in anger, and he decides to murder all of the male children in Bethlehem under the age of two years. He wanted to make sure that he covered the spectrum, so he even goes beyond what was needed, all the way up to two years. What do the deaths of a, a few more children mean to somebody that's trying to hold on to their ease and their power and their position? This is quite in keeping with Herod's character. As we spoke about last week, he killed three of his sons. He killed his wife because he felt threatened by her. We know that Josephus records that when Herod was on his deathbed, he gave an order that every single family in his territory should have one person killed upon his death so that everybody would mourn his death. He was truly a wicked man. And so he strikes out at these children in Bethlehem to try and snuff out the Messiah. Truly the wickedness of man knows no end until they reach death. But they all die. They all die. It's a good reminder as you and I face opposition, as we face persecution, and no doubt it will increase in our land. We can remind ourselves that the enemies of God and His people, they always perish. Just like Herod. They always perish. So it's a good reminder to us. We, we as Christians get to play the long game. We can be patient. Because we have one who sits enthroned on high. And we know that eternity is what we're aimed at.
So we can be patient. We can be prayerful. And we can endure. Here's the very Son of God who was born into the world and he's persecuted by this regional king and it appears, doesn't it appear that the world has the upper hand? He is forced to flee down to Egypt. He is forced to be the refugee and it appears that, that though the light has come into the world that the darkness has overcome the light. That's what it appears as if. Jesus is the one on the run. The children in his town of birth are slaughtered. It can feel like darkness is winning. Traditional views on marriage and sex and gender are made to look foolish. You're all of a sudden a fanatic and a barbarian and backwards and intolerant and a bigot for advocating what has always been. Darkness has swallowed up the light, or at least it's driven it away. Psalm 2 says the nations rage and the rulers, they plot in vain. And it says that God just sits enthroned in heaven and he laughs. Not, not a ha-ha kind of laugh. It's not, oh, this is funny. It's a laugh of, of these people, they are laughable. We have a deliverer who provides hope for his people. Herod's slaughter of these children in Bethlehem, it's no laughing matter. There is significant grief and significant pain. And so Matthew quotes from Jeremiah 31 and verse 18. It says, A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. And Rachel was symbolically the mother of the nation of Israel. Leah gave birth to more tribes of the 12 tribes, but but Rachel was considered the mother. And so, Jeremiah 31 is picturing the Jews being led off into exile, off into captivity, and it pictures Rachel as the mother of the nation crying. She's weeping because she's lost. Her children are no more. They've been carried off. And, and so rightfully, there is weeping. There is sorrow. And the same with these mothers in Bethlehem. Their, their very children have been snuffed out. So there's weeping. And there's sorrow. But Matthew cites this passage for another reason. It's being fulfilled. Because, because the story doesn't end there. Jeremiah 31 is that great text of the new covenant. Where God promises that though there is weeping and though his people are being led off into captivity, he promises that he loves them with an everlasting love. And so he will not forsake them. And he says there will be this new covenant. Whereby he will draw men and women to himself. There is this, this promise of deliverance. Though the mothers of Bethlehem are mourning and they're weeping just like the mothers of the Exodus, Matthew is telling us that there is hope because the deliverer of God's people, the one who establishes the new covenant, has escaped. 
He's escaped. There's a deliverer who provides hope for his people. And there is always, always, always hope for the people of God. Because he lives. Because he lives. Even when the darkness appears to have the upper hand, it doesn't. Even when it feels like the darkness is overshadowing the light and the light has been forced to flee, it doesn't have the upper hand. He lives. So in the midst of that weeping and mourning and crying, real loss, real loss, where there should be weeping and mourning and crying, there's hope. The hope of deliverance. And not some bare hope, but a living hope. A guaranteed hope. Jesus says, the suffering Savior who identifies with his people, the true Israel of God who rightly represents his people, the deliverer who provides hope for his people, and finally, Jesus is the humble Savior who serves his people. Verse 19. Verse 19, that angel appears to Joseph in a dream yet again, and it's time to let him know that Herod has passed, and those that ruled with him are no longer in control, and so it's time for him to return to Israel. It, it appears that Joseph took Mary and Jesus, and he was intent on heading to Bethlehem, uh, but then he realized that Archelaus was ruling over the area that Bethlehem was included in. When Herod died... Uh, the Roman Empire decided that Herod, as we talked about last week, was a great administrator, a great leader, and Rome decided that none of his sons could quite do what Herod the Great had done. And so they divided his territory up into three different realms, and they gave Judea and Samaria and Idumea to, to his son, Archelaus. And Archelaus was a wicked man. As one commentator stated, he was noted for his cruelty even in an age when cruel men were not scarce. If Herod was awful, Archelaus was a monster. Uh, he on one night, one night he killed 3,000 Jews. One night. And so Joseph hears that Archelaus is over the region that would have included Bethlehem, and he decides that's not the place that we want to head. And so instead, he goes to uh, Galilee and specifically a city called Nazareth, we're told in verse 33. And Matthew, in light of this, gives another fulfilled prophecy. He says in verse 33, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Now here's the apparent problem. That's nowhere in the Bible. There's no such prophecy that says he shall be called a Nazarene. It's never mentioned that the Messiah would come from Nazareth. You don't find it in word for word in the Scriptures, and yet I would argue that it is throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. What do I mean? Well, Nazareth was a place of no consequence. It's 
name isn't found in any of the pages of the Old Testament. It's not found in the Talmud. It's not found in the Midrash literature. It's not even found in Josephus. Not only was it a no-name place, it was a despised place. Even the Galileans themselves didn't think much of Nazareth. You'll remember that when Nathanael was told in John 1 there that Jesus is from Nazareth, you remember his response. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Even a Galilean, a fellow Galilean, looked down upon Nazareth. When Paul, later in Acts, is brought before Felix, uh, the priest there will throw a slur at him and say that he is part of the Nazarene sect. It's meant to be an insult. Nobody likes Nazareth. You think if Jesus been called Jesus of Bethlehem, there would have been kind of an air of superiority around that. Bethlehem, people knew that's where the king would come forth from. That's where the Messiah would come from. But Nazareth, that means nothing. It is from this know-nothing, despised place that he would come, and it is from this know-nothing place that he would be known to have come from. And Matthew is writing at least in part to Jews, and as Jews would have read this prophecy that that Matthew claims he shall be called a Nazarene, they wouldn't have even paused. They would have readily accepted this, that they would have known, yes, nowhere did the Scriptures speak of Nazareth, but they knew that the Scriptures were clear that this Messiah was going to be despised, that he was going to be a man of sorrows, that he was going to be humble. And Matthew is, is giving us the totality of what the Scriptures speak about here or spoke about here, not just from one passage. So as an example, we might say, well, as the Scriptures say, the Christian life is not an easy path. Well, you, you know what I mean. You can't find that in the Bible. There's no verse that says that, but you know that all the New Testament is replete with that. It is from this know-nothing place that Jesus is to come. Amen who the Scriptures say would be despised and a man of sorrows and, and humble. And Jesus is the humble Savior who serves His people. From the beginning of His life to the end, He comes to serve His people. I came not to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, He said. This one who created everything, who sustains everything, even, even in his very birth, as that baby in the manger, he's still sustaining all the universe in his hands. The one who angels bow down and have worship for all of eternity, that he could snap his fingers and archangels go off running to do whatever he bids them to do. And yet he comes into this world and for 90% of his life on earth he lives in this backwater town without notice. For 30 years he's there without notice. 
All of this was created for him to give him praise and glory and for 30 years. No one acknowledges him. No one notices him. Angels are in heaven ascribing glory and praise to him. And he's in some backward town. Doing who knows what. We don't know. And neither does anyone else. Because no one took notice. He simply lives among his people as their humble savior. Without notice, without care, without adoration, without praise. Why? To serve us. Serve us. To prepare him for the ministry he was about to enter on our behalf. This one who had enjoyed the worship of angels for eternity. What humility. And he did this for us. Friends, whatever demands he makes upon your life, whatever it is that he requires of you to give up for him, whatever it is that you have that little prick in your conscience that says, I need to turn this over to him, whatever time and talents and resources you give for him and his kingdom, He is more than worthy. He is worthy of all of your life. This suffering Savior, this true Israel of God, this deliverer who provides hope, our humble Savior, who lives and lives to serve us. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. He lives to make intercession for us. He lives to serve us. That boggles the mind. He's worthy. He's worthy of your life and your praise and your adoration. Let's pray. Lord and our God, I exalt you this morning. exalt you, especially Lord Jesus, this morning, that you are our deliverer, that you suffered for our sake, that you were a man of sorrows who humbled himself for our sake, and that you even now live, because of that we have hope, hope eternal. Oh, forgive us that we do not yield more of ourselves to you. Forgive us that we do not ascribe the glory that is due your name. How easily your name crosses our lips. How quickly it exits our minds. Oh, we would delight more in you, our Lord and our Savior. Help us to do such. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.